When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Suppose you get stuff of that kind through your hands pretty often, said Mr. Dillon as he pointed with his stick to an object which shall be described when the time comes. And when he said it, he lied in his throat and knew that he lied. Not once in twenty years, perhaps not once in a lifetime, could Mr. Chittenden, skilled as he was in fretting about the forgotten treasures of a half-dozen countries, expect to handle such a specimen. It was a collector's palaver and Mr. Chittenden recognized it as such. Stuff of that kind, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> it's a museum piece, that is. Well, I suppose there are museums that'll take anything. I've seen one, not as good at that, years back, said Mr. Chittenden thoughtfully. But that's not likely to come into the market, and I'm told they have some fine ones of that period over the water. No. I'm only telling you the truth, Mr. Dillett. When I was to say that if you was to place an unlimited order with me for the very best that I could be, got... No. I'm only telling you the truth, Mr. Dillett. When I was to say that if you was to place an unlimited order with me for the very best that could be got, and you know I have facilities for getting to know of such things and a reputation to maintain, well, all I can say is I should lead you straight up to that one and say, I can't do no better than that for you, sir. Here, here, said Mr. Dillard, applauding ironically with the end of his stick on the floor of the shop. How much are you sticking the innocent American buyer for it, eh? Oh, I shouldn't be hard on the buyer, American or otherwise. You see, it stands this way, Mr. Dillard, if I knew just a bit more about the pedigree. Or a bit less, Mr. Dillard put in. <laughs> you will have your jokes, sir. No. But, as I was saying, if I knew a little more than what I do about the piece, though anyone can see for themselves it's a genuine thing, every last corner of it, and there's not been one of my men allowed to so much as touch it since it came into the shop, there'd be another figure in the price I'm asking. And what's that? Five and twenty? Multiply that by three and you've got it, sir. Seventy-five's my price. And fifty's mine, said Mr. Dillett. The point of argument was, of course, somewhere between the two. It doesn't matter exactly where, I think sixty guineas. But half an hour later, the object was being packed, and within an hour, Mr. Dillard had called for it in his car and driven away. Mr. Chittenden, holding the check in his hand, saw him off the door with smiles, and returned, still smiling into the parlor, where his wife was making the tea. He stopped at the door. It's gone he said. Thank God for that, said Mrs. Chittenden, putting down the teapot. Mr. Dillett, was it? Yes, it was. Well, might sooner it was him than another. Oh, I don't know, he ain't that bad of a fella, my dear. Maybe not, but in my opinion, he'd be none the worse for a bit of a shake-up. <laughs> well, if that's your opinion, it's my opinion he's put himself in the way of getting one. Anyhow, we shouldn't have no more of it, and that's something to be thankful for. And so Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden sat down to tea. And what of Mr. Dillett and his new acquisition? What it was, the title of the story will have told you. What it was like, I shall have to indicate as well as I can. There was only just enough room for it in the car, and Mr. Dillett had to sit with the driver. He also had to go slow, for though the rooms of the doll's house had been stuffed carefully with soft cotton wool, jolting to be avoided in view of the immense number of small objects which thronged them, and the ten-mile drive was an anxious time for him, in spite of all the precautions he insisted upon. At last his front door was reached, and Collins, the butler, came out. "'Look here, Collins, you must help me with this thing. It's a delicate job. We must get it out upright, see?' It's full of little things that mustn't be displaced more than we can help. 
Let's see. Where shall we have it? After a pause for consideration. Really, I think I shall have to put it in my own room to begin with at any rate. On the big table. That's it. It was conveyed, with much talking, to Mr. Dillett's spacious room on the first floor looking out onto the drive. The sheeting was unwound from it and the front thrown open, and for the next hour or two, Mr. Dillett was fully occupied in extracting the padding and setting the order of the contents of the rooms. When this early congenial task was finished, I must say that it would have been difficult to find a more perfect and attractive specimen of a doll's house in Strawberry Hill Gothic than that which now stood on Mr. Dillett's large, knee-hole table, lighted up by the evening sun which came slanting through three tall slash windows. It was quite six feet long, including the chapel or oratory which flanked the front on the left as you faced it, and the stable on the right. The main block of the house was, as I have said, in the Gothic manner. That is to say, the windows had pointed arches and were surmounted by what are called ogival hoods, with crockets and finials such as we see on the canopies of tombs built into church walls. At the angles were absurd turrets covered with arched panels. The chapel had pinnacles of buttresses and a bell on the turret and colored glass in the windows. When the front of the house was open, you saw four large rooms. Bedroom, dining room, drawing room, and a kitchen, each with its appropriate furniture in a very complete state. The stable on the right was in two stories, with its proper complement of horses, coaches, and grooms, and with its clock and gothic copula for the clock bell. Pages, of course, might be written on the outfit of the mansion. How many frying pans, how many gilt chairs, what pictures, carpets, chandeliers, four posters, table linen, glass, crockery, and plate it possessed. But all this must be left to the imagination. I will only say that the base or plinth on which the house stood, for it was fitted with one of some depth which allowed of a flight of stairs to the front door and terrace, partially balustrated, contained a shallow drawer or drawers in which were neatly stored sets of embroidered curtains, changes of raiment for the inmates, and, in short, all the materials for an infinite series of variations and refittings of the most absorbing and delightful kind. Quintessence of Horace Walpole, that's what it is. He must have had something to do with the making of it. Such was Mr. Dillett's murmured reflection as he knelt before it in reverent ecstasy. Simply wonderful. This is my day, and no mistake. Five hundred pounds coming in this morning for that cabinet which I never cared about, and now this tumbling into my hands for a tenth, at the very most, of what it would fetch in town. Well, well. It almost makes one afraid something will happen to counter it. Let's have a look at the population, anyhow. Accordingly, he set them before him in a row. Again, here is an opportunity which some would snatch at of making an inventory of costume. I am incapable of it. There were a gentleman and a lady in a blue satin and brocade, respectively. There were two children, a boy and a girl. There was a cook, a nurse, a footman, and there were the stable servants. Two postilions, a coachman, two grooms. Anyone else? Yes, possibly. The curtains of the four-poster in the bedroom were closely drawn round all on four sides of it, and he put his finger in between them and felt in the bed. He drew his finger back hastily, for it almost seemed as if something had not stirred, perhaps, but yielded in an odd, live way as he pressed it. Then he put back the curtain, which ran on rods in a proper manner, and extracted the bed with a white-haired old gentleman in a long linen nightdress and cap, and laid him down by the rest. The tale was complete. Dinner time was now near, so Mr. Dill had spent five minutes in putting the lady and children into the drawing room, the gentleman into the dining room, the servants into the kitchen and stables, and the old man back into his bed. He retired into his dressing room next door, and we see or hear no more of him until something like eleven o'clock that night. His whim was to sleep surrounded by some of the gems of his collection. The big room in which we have seen him contained his bed, bath, wardrobe, and all the appliances of dressing were in a commodious room adjoining, but his four-poster, which itself was a valued treasure, stood in the large room where he sometimes wrote, and often sat and even received visitors. 
Tonight he repaired to it in a highly complacent frame of mind. There was no striking clock within earshot. None on the staircase, none in the stable, none in the distant church tower. Yet it was indubitable that Mr. Dillard was started out of a very pleasant slumber by a bell tolling one. He was so much startled that he did not merely lie breathless with eyes wide open, but actually sat up in his bed. He never asked himself till the morning hours how it was that, though there was no light at all in the room, the doll's house on the knee-hole table stood out with a complete clearness. But it was so. The effect was that of a bright harvest moon shining full on the front of a big white stone mansion, a quarter of a mile away it might be, and yet every detail was photographically sharp. There were trees about it, too, trees rising behind the chapel in the house. He seemed to be conscious of the scent of a cool, still September night. He thought he could hear an occasional stamp and clink from the stables as horses stirring. And with another shock, he realized that above the house, he was looking, not at all the wall of his room with its pictures, but into the profound blue of a night sky. There were lights, more than one, in the window, and he quickly saw that this was no four-roomed house with a movable front, but one of many rooms and staircases, a real house, but seen as if through the wrong end of a telescope. You mean to show me something? He muttered to himself, and he gazed earnestly on the lighted windows. They would, in real life, have been shuttered or curtained, no doubt, he thought, but as it was, there was nothing to intercept its view of what was being transacted inside the rooms. The rooms were lighted, one on the ground floor to the right of the door, one upstairs, on the left, the first brightly enough, the other rather dimly. The lower room was the dining room. A table was laid, but the meal was over, and only wine and glasses were left on the table. The man of the blue satin and the woman of the brocade were alone in the room, and they were talking very earnestly, sitting close together at the table, their elbows on it, every now and again stopping to listen, as it seemed. Once he rose, came to the window and opened it, and put his head out and his hand to his ear. There was a lighted taper and a silver candlestick on a sideboard. When the man left the window, he seemed to leave the room also, and the lady, taper in hand, remained standing and listening. The expression on her face was that of one striving her utmost to keep down a fear that threatened to master her in succeeding. It was a hateful face, too, broad, flat, and sly. Now the man came back, and she shook the small thing from him and hurried out the room. He, too, disappeared, but only for a moment or two. The front door slowly opened, and he stepped out and stood at the top of the parent, looking this way and that. Then he turned toward the upper window that was lighted and shook his fist. It was time to look at that upper window. Through it was seen a four-post bed, a nurse or other servant in an armchair, evidently sound asleep, in the bed an old man lying, awake, and one would say anxious, from the way he shifted about and moved his fingers, beating tunes on the coverlet. Beyond the bed, a door opened. Light was seen on the ceiling, and a lady came in. She sat down her candle on the table, came to the fireside, and roused the nurse. In her hand, she had an old-fashioned wine bottle, ready, uncorked. The nurse took it, poured some of the contents into a silver saucepan, added some spice and sugar from the casters on the table, and set it to warm on the fire. Meanwhile, the old man in the bed beckoned feebly to the lady, who came to him smiling, took his wrist as if to feel his pulse, and bit her lip as if in consternation. He looked at her anxiously, and then pointed to the window and spoke. She nodded and did as the man below had done, opened the casement and listened perhaps rather ostentatiously, then drew her head in, shook it, looking at the old man who seemed to sigh. By this time, the posset on the fire was steaming, and the nurse poured into a small two-handed silver bowl and brought it to the bedside. The old man seemed disinclined for it and was waving it away, but the lady and the nurse together bent over him and evidently pressed it upon him. He must have yielded, for they supported him into a sitting position and put it to his lips. He drank most of it in several draughts, 
and they laid him down. The lady left the front room, smiling goodnight to him, and took the bowl, the bottle, and the silver saucepan with her. The nurse returned to the chair, and there was an interval of complete quiet. Suddenly, the old man started up in his bed, and he must have uttered some cry, for the nurse started out of her chair and made but one step to the bedside. He was a sad and terrible sight. Flushed in the face almost to blackness, the eyes glaring whitely, both hands clutching at his heart, foam at his lips. For a moment, the nurse left him, ran to the door, flung it wide open, and one supposes screamed aloud for help, then darted back to the bed and seemed to try feverishly to soothe him, to lay him down anything. But as the lady, her husband, and several servants rushed into the room with horrified faces, the old man collapsed under the nurse's hand and lay back, and his features contorted with agony, rage, and then relaxed slowly into calm. A few moments later, lights showed out the left of the house, and a coach with a flambeau drove up to the door. A white-wigged man in black got nimbly out and ran up the steps, carrying a small leather trunk-shaped box. He was met in the doorway by the man and his wife, she with her handkerchief clutched between her hands, he with a tragic face, but retaining his self-control. They led the newcomer into the dining room where he sat his box of papers on the table and, turning to them, listened with a face of consternation at what they had to tell. He nodded his head again and again, threw out his hand slightly, declined, it seemed, offers of refreshments and lodging for the night, and within a few minutes came slowly down the steps, entering the coach and driving off the way he had come. As the man in blue watched him from the top of the steps, a smile not pleasant to see stole slowly over his fat white face. Darkness fell over the whole scene as the lights of the coach disappeared. But Mr. Dillard remained sitting up in bed. He had rightly guessed that there would be a sequel. The house front glimmered out again before long, but now there was a difference. The lights were in other windows. One at the top of the house, the other illuminating the range of colored windows of the chapel. Now he saw through these is not quite obvious, but he did. The interior was as carefully furnished as the rest of the establishment, with its minute red cushions on the desk, its gothic stall canopies, and its western gallery and pinnacled organ with gold pipes. On the center of the black and white pavement was a beer. Four tall candles burned at the corners. On the beer was a coffin covered with a pall of black velvet. As he looked, the folds of his pall stirred. It seemed to rise at one end, it slid downward, it fell away, exposing the black coffin with its silver handles and nameplate. One of the tall candlesticks swayed and toppled over. Ask no more, but turn, as Mr. Dillard hastily did, and look in at the lighted window at the top of the house, where a boy and a girl lay in truckle beds, and a four-poster for the nurse rose above them. The nurse was not visible for the moment, but the father and mother were there, dressed now in mourning, but with very little sign of mourning in their demeanor. Indeed, they were laughing and talking with a good deal of animation, sometimes to each other and sometimes throwing a remark to one of the other of the children laughing at the answers. Then the father was seen to go on and tiptoe out of the room, taking with him as he went a white garment that hung on a peg nearby the door. He shut the door after him. A minute or two later it was slowly opened again and a muffled head poked around it. A bent form of sinister shape stepped across to the truckle beds and suddenly stopped, threw its arms up and revealed, of course, the father, laughing. The children were in agonies of terror, the boy with the bedclothes over his head, the girl throwing herself out of the bed in her mother's arms. Attempt at consolation followed. The parent took their children on the laps, patted them, picked up the white gown, and showed them there was no harm of it and so forth. And at last, putting the children back into bed, left the room with encouraging waves of the hand. As they left it, the nurse came in, and as soon, the light died down. Still, Mr. Dillard watched, immovable. A new sort of light, not of lamp or candle. A pale, ugly light began to dawn around the doorcase at the back of the room. The door was opening again. 
The seer does not like to dwell upon what he saw entering the room. He says it may be described as a frog, the size of a man, but it had scanty white hair about its head. It was busy about the truckle beds, but not for long. The sound of the cries, faint, as if coming out of vast distance, but even so, infinitely appalling, reached the ear. There were signs of a hideous commotion all over the house. Lights moved along and up, and doors opened and shut, and running figures passed within the windows. The clock in the stable turret told one, and darkness fell again. It was only dispelled once more to show the house front. At the bottom of the steps, dark figures were drawn up in two lines, holding flaming torches. More dark figures came down the steps, bearing first one, then another small coffin. And the lines of torch bearers with the coffins between them moved silently onward to the left. The hours of night passed on, never so slowly, Mr. Dillett thought. Gradually, he sank down from the sitting to lying in his bed, but he did not close an eye. And early next morning, he sent for the doctor. The doctor found him in a disquieting state of nerves and recommended sea air. To a quiet place on the east coast, he accordingly repaired by easy stages in his car. One of the first people he met on the seafront was Mr. Chittenden, who, it appeared, had likewise been advised to take his wife away for a bit of change. Mr. Chittenden looked somewhat askance upon him when they met, and not without cause. Well, I don't wonder you being a bit upset, Mr. Dillon. What? Yes, well, I might say, horrible upset, to be sure, seeing what me and my poor wife went through ourselves. But I put it to you, Mr. Dillett, one of the two things. Was I going to scrap a lovely piece like that on the one hand, or was I going to tell customers, I'm selling you a regular picture palace Tremar in real life of the olden time, billed to perform regular at 1 o'clock a.m.? What would you have said to yourself? And the next thing you know, two justices of the peace in the black parlor and poor Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden off in a spring cart to the county asylum and everyone in the street saying, Ah, oh, I thought it'd come to that. Look at the way that man drank. And me, next door, or next door but one, to a total abstainer, as you know. Well, there was my position. What? Me have it back at the shop. Well, what do you think? No but I'll tell you what I'll do. You shall have your money back, bar the ten pound I paid you for it, and you make what you can. Later in the day, in what was offensively called the smoke room of a hotel, a murmured conversation between the two went on for some time. How much do you really know about that thing and where it came from? Honest, Mr. Dillett, I don't know the house. Of course... It came out of the lumber room of a country house. That anyone could guess. But I'll go as far to say this, that I believe it's not a hundred miles from this place. Which direction and how far, I've no notion. I'm only judging by guesswork. The man, as I actually paid the check to, ain't one of my regular men, and I've lost sight of him. But I have the idea that this part of the country was his beat, and that's every word I can tell you. But now, Mr. Dillett, there's one thing that rather physics me. That old chap. I suppose you saw him drive up to the door. I thought so. Now, would he have been the medical man, do you take it? My wife would have it so, but I stuck to it that it was the lawyer, because he had papers with him, and one he took out was folded up. I agree, said Mr. Dillett. Thinking it over, I came to the conclusion that was the old man's will, ready to be signed. Just what I thought, said Mr. Chittenden, and I took it that will have cut out the young people, eh? Well, well, it's been a lesson to me, I know that. I shan't buy any more dolls' houses, nor waste no more money on pictures. And as to the business of poisoning Grandpa, well, if you know myself, I never had much of a turn for that. Live and let live, that's been my motto throughout life, and I ain't found it a bad one. Filled with these elevated sentiments, Mr. Chittenden retired to his lodgings. Mr. Dillett next day repaired to the local institute, where he hoped to find some clue to the riddle that absorbed him. 
He gazed in despair at a long file at the Cantonbury and York Society publications of the parish registers of the district. No print resembling the house of his nightmare was among that hung on the staircase and in the passages. Disconsolate, he found himself at last in the derelict room, staring at a dusty model of a church in a dusty glass case. Model of St. Stephen's Church, Coxham. Presented by J. Merriweather Esquire of Hillbridge House, 1877. The work of his ancestor, James Merriweather, 1786. There was something in the fashion of it that reminded him dimly of his horror. He retraced his steps to a wall map he had noticed and made out that Ilbridge House was in Coxham Parish. Coxham was, as it happened, one of the parishes of which he had retained the name when he glanced over the file of printed registers, and it was not long before he found them in the record of burial Roger Milford age 76, on the 11th of September, 1757, and of Roger and Elizabeth Merriweather, age 9 and 7, on the 19th of the same month. It seemed worthwhile to follow up this clue, frail as it was, and in the afternoon he drove out to Coxham. The east end of the north aisle of a church is a Milford chapel, and on its north wall are tablets of the same persons. Roger, the elder, it seems, was distinguished by all the qualities which adorn the father, the magistrate, and the man. The memorial was erected by his attached daughter, Elizabeth, who did not long survive the loss of a parent ever solicitous for his welfare and of two amiable children. The last sentence was plainly an addition to the original inscription. A yet later slab told of James Merriweather, husband of Elizabeth, who in the dawn of life practiced not without success those arts which he'd continued their exercise might, in the opinion of the most competent judges, have earned for him the name of the British Virtuivus, but who, overwhelmed by the visitation which deprived him of an affectionate partner and a blooming offspring, past his prime and age in a secluded yet elegant retirement. His grateful nephew and heir indulges in pious sorrow by this too brief recital of excellences. The children were more simply commemorated. Both died on the night of the 12th of September. Mr. Dillard felt sure that in Ilbridge House he had found the scene of his drama. In some old sketchbook, Possibly in some old print, he may yet find convincing evidence that he was right. But the Ilbridge house of today is not that which he sought. It is an Elizabeth erection of the forties, in red brick with stone coins and dressings. A quarter of a mile from it, in a low part of the park, backed by ancient, stag-horned, ivy-strangled trees and thick undergrowth, and are marks of a terraced platform overgrown with rough grass. A few stone balusters lie here and there, and a heap or two covered with nettles of ivy of wrought stones with badly carved crockets. This, someone told Mr. Dillard, was the site of an older house. As he drove out to the village, the hall clock struck four, and Mr. Dillard started up and clapped his hands to his ears. It was not the first time he'd heard that bell. Awaiting an offer on the other side of the Atlantic, the doll's house still reposes carefully sheeted in a loft over Mr. Dillett's stables, with her columns conveyed on the day when Mr. Dillett started for the sea coast. I can assure you, I said, that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me. I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with a withered arm, and glanced at me in askance. Eight and twenty years, I said. I've lived here, and never a ghost have I seen yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. Aye, she broke in. In eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's many things to see when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. And many things to see and sorrow for. I half suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence. 
I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room and caught a glimpse of myself, abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror at the end of the room. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight, I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It is your own choosing, said the man with a withered arm once more. I heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside, and the door creaked on its hinges as the second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by a single crutch, his eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half averted, hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. I said, It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm when the coughing had ceased for a while. It's my own choosing, I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and splutter again. Why don't you drink? said the man with the withered arm, pushing the beer towards him. The man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaky hand that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank. I must confess... I had scarce expected these grotesque custodians. There is to my mind something inhuman about senility, something crouching and atavistic. The human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. If, said I, you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will make myself comfortable there. The old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me, and shot another glance of his red eye at me from under the shade. But no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. If, I said a little louder, if you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me. There's a candle on the slab outside the door, said the man with the withered arm, looking at my feet as he addressed me. But if you go to the red room tonight, this night of all nights, said the old woman, you go alone. Very well, I answered. And which way do I go? You go along the passage for a bit, said he, until you come to a door, and through that is a spiral staircase, and halfway up is a landing and another door covered with bays. Go through that, and down the long corridor to the end, and the red room is on your left up the steps. Have I got that right? I said, and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. And are you really going said the man with the shade, looking at me again for the third time with that queer, unnatural tilting of the face. This night of all nights, said the old woman. It is what I came for, I said, and moved toward the door. As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door, I turned and looked at them and saw that we were all close together dark against the firelight, staring at me over their shoulders, with an intent expression on their ancient faces. Good night, I said, setting the door open. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in and walked down the chilly, echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle and the deep-toned, old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered affected me in spite of my efforts to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. 
They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours, less certain, an age when omens and witches were credible, and ghosts beyond denying. Their very existence was spectral, the cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains, the ornaments and conveniences of the room about them were ghostly, the thoughts of vanished men which still haunted rather than participated in the world of today. But with an effort I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, draughty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and one fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancied I'd heard. Then, satisfied of the absolute silence, I pushed open the baize covered door and stood in the corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picks out everything in vivid black shadow or silverly illumination. Everything was in its place. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of eighteen months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was disturbed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight. I was about to advance and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me in the corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling and gave me the impression of someone crouching to allay me. I stood rigid for a half minute, perhaps. Then, with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver, I advanced, only to discover I gained mean an eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerve, and a porcelain statue on a bowl table whose head rocked silently as I passed him scarcely startled me. The door to the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, I thought that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the gain meat in the moonlight and opened the door to the red room rather hastily with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the landing. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key and found the lock within and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, the great room of Lorraine Castle, in which the young duke had died. Or rather, in which he had begun his dying, for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of this place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. And there were other and older stories that clung to the room, back to the half-credible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her, and looking around that large, somber room with its shadowy window bays, its recesses and alcoves, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darkness. My candle was a little tongue in the light of its vastness that failed to pierce the opposite end of the room and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light. I resolved to make a systemic examination of the place at once and dispel the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained a hold upon me. After satisfying myself on the fastening of the door, I began to walk about the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel shelf, too, were more candles and china candlesticks. All these I lit one after the other. The fire was laid, and unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper and I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well, I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I'd pulled up a chintz-covered armchair 
and a table to form a kind of barricade before me, and on this lay my revolver ready to hand. My precise examination had done me good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove at the end in particular had that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. At last, to reassure myself, I walked with the candle into it and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position. By this time, I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason there was no adequate cause for the condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated quite unreservedly that nothing supernatural could happen, and to pass the time I began to string some rhymes together, in Golbsy fashion, of the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason, I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The somber reds and blacks of the room troubled me. Even with seven candles, the place was merely dim. The one in the alcove flared in a draught, and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring. Casting about for a remedy, I recalled the candles I'd seen in the passage, and with a slight effort walked out into the moonlight carrying a candle and leaving the door open, and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in various knick-knacks of china, with which the room was sparsely adorned, lit and placed where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some on the window recesses, until at last my seventeen candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghosts came, I could warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brightly illuminated. There was something very cheery and reassuring in these little streaming flames, and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a helpful sense of passage of time. Even with that, however, the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me. It was after midnight that the candle in the alcove suddenly went out, and the black shadow sprang back to its place there. I did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw that the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. "'My Jove,' said I aloud, "'that draught's a strong one.' And taking the matches from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike, and as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw that the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. Odd, I said. Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness? I walked back relid one, and as I did so, I saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out, and almost immediately its companion followed. There was no mistake about it. The flame had vanished, as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step toward me. This won't do, said I, and the first and then another candle on the mantel shelf followed. What's up? I cried with a queer high note, getting into my voice somehow. At that the candle on the wardrobe went out, and the one I'd relit in the alcove followed. Steady on, I said. These candles are wanted. Speaking with a half-hysterical facetiousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantel candlesticks. My hands trembled so much that twice I missed the rough paper on the matchbox. As the mantel emerged from darkness again, two candles in the remoter end of the window were eclipsed. 
but with the same match I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for a moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then, in a volley, there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in a quivering haste and stood hesitating whither to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, and then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. Then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this, I avoided the delay of striking matches, but for all that, the steady process of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me. First, a step gained on this side of me, and then on that. It was like a ragged storm cloud sweeping out the stars. I was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness, and my self-profession deserted me. I leaped, panting and disheveled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against that remorseless advance. But I bruised myself on the thigh against the table. I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. My candle rolled away from me and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that staved off the shadows from me. The fire! Of course, I could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps toward the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished. The glow vanished, the reflections rushed together and vanished, and I thrust the candle between the bar's darkness and closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision and crushed the last vestiges of reason from my brain. The candle fell from my hand. I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and lifting up my voice, screamed with all my might, once, twice, thrice, then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and with my head bowed and my arms over my face, I made a run for the door. But I'd forgotten the exact position of the door and struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture. I have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness of a cramped struggle and of my own wild carrying as I darted to and fro of heavy blow at last upon my forehead, a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, with my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then I remembered no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and the man with the withered arm was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue phial into a glass. Where am I? I asked. I seem to remember you, and yet I cannot remember who you are. They told me then, and I heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. It was very slowly I recovered my memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man, that the room is haunted? He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but as one who grieves for a broken friend. Yes, said I, the room is haunted. And you have seen it, and we who have lived here all of our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who... No, said I, it is not. I told you so, said the old lady with the glass in her hand. It is this poor young countess who is frightened, it is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghost of Countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all, but worse, far worse. Well, they said, 
The worst of all things that haunt poor mortal men, I said, and that is, in all its nakedness, fear that will not have light nor sound, that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor, it fought against me in the room, but I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. Then the man with the shade sighed and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness to put such curse upon a woman. It lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even of a bright summer's day, in the hangings and the curtains, keeping behind you however you face it. In the dusk, it creeps along the corridor and follows you so that you dare not turn. There is fear in that room of hers, black fear, and there will be, so long as this house of sin endures. Hello everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. I know, I know, they're older (laughs) public domain horror stories, but it was something I wanted to try. I haven't done one in a long time. I think the last one I did was the yellow wallpaper, or maybe the cask of Amontillado. I'm not 100% sure, but we haven't done one in a long time, and these two were really, really fun to read. I really enjoyed both of them. Let me know which one you liked more in the comment section, and if you have one that you know of, one of one of these that's your favorite, any kind of public domain horror or sci-fi story you'd like to hear, let me know about it in the comment section down below, and maybe we'll check it out on the channel. While you're doing that, I'm going to give a quick thank you to all of our patrons and members. It's Absinthe Alice, Amethyst Demet, Anne Barry, Bubbly Panda, Coraline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tykus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If In Doubt, Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Flanning, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bandon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New Ongome 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and finally, Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. It really, really helps me out. And thank you to everyone who stops by, watches the videos, leaves a comment, leaves a like. That really helps out as well. I hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, stay safe out there.